Well, good morning. Good morning. My voice isn't normally this sexy and husky, <laughs> but I have been receiving the gift that keeps on giving, and that is the cold that's been going around in my family. So I'm going to try to be as articulate as I possibly can through uh, the voice that you're hearing and needing to wear a mask. I don't have COVID. So no worries there. I've been testing every day, but certainly uh, this cold has, has gotten my voice a little. But I want to speak on something that I'm excited to talk about this morning. And it's a story that comes early in the history of the Jewish faith. And it comes from chapter 18 of Genesis. So I'd like to start by reading the scripture passage this morning. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he raised his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed down to the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and make yourselves comfortable under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread so that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have finished, uh, visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate it. Let's pause for a moment of prayer. God of light, by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts to catch a vision of your life-giving reality for us today. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I enjoyed revisiting this passage of Abraham and the three strangers this week. And this part of the story can get often overlooked because in the 10 verses that follow, we get the more uh, familiar account of when God spoke through these men to tell Abraham and Sarah, who are both of very old age, that they were going to have a child. You might remember that part of the story. But this morning, I want us to camp out here on this encounter, and I want to tease out what it might speak to us regarding welcome and hospitality. And along with these themes, I first want to notice that there are transformations that are taking place in just these eight short verses. These three visiting strangers are entering Abraham's tent seemingly from out of nowhere, and instantly they are greeted and given the status of honored guests. Though there's nothing here that suggests why they are so quickly revered and welcomed. And we could say that their position before Abraham and Sarah is instantly changed. And the hosts themselves are transformed in this brief encounter. Abraham, he's moving from being a defender of his territory, of his property, and very quickly assuming the role of humble servant and host as soon as they arrive. And there are these transitions that are taking place right in front of our eyes. 
what we know about the ancient Near East, that is the geographical location of the Old Testament, was that it was a hot, dry land, a very harsh and a very unwelcoming climate. Travelers that were getting from one place to the next would inevitably pass through the properties of others. And many times out of necessity, they were thirsty and they were hungry on their journeys and sometimes just needed to borrow the shade of a tree. And so this is to remember that there were no Starbucks. There, you know, there were no Shake Shacks on the corner. Strangers would be very dependent on the hospitality of others and often for their very survival. It's also noteworthy in this time that the idea of a stranger was itself shifting. The ancient Near East was very nomadic culture. This means that people were moving around quite a bit, but they never really traveled very far. So people would have been very familiar in their region as they went to and from, and they might even be recognized by the same faces and greeted over and over again as they made their way. Yet eventually, with the rise of the Roman Empire, travel began to increase because new roadways were being built. And this enabled people to take longer and longer journeys to lands much further away. So as you can imagine, as time went on, there would also be the chance that you would encounter true strangers in your land. And this increased mobility also brought with it the risk that as you come in contact with people you didn't know, there was the increased chance that it could be a danger to you. They could rob you. They could cause physical harm to you and your family. And I think this is why Abraham's actions particularly stand out to me. Did you notice the first thing that he does when he sees these strangers entering his property? He runs to them. He doesn't saunter in their direction, but he runs. And I imagine this sight Old man Abraham, robed, hiked up, sprinting to greet these guests that he has no idea who they are. And as he reaches him, he bows himself low, saying, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Abraham is taking on the position of servant, calling them Lord, which was a title of respect as someone that was much higher up than you were. But it should have been the other way around, shouldn't Abraham was of wealthy lineage, highly regarded in the land, yet he is the one here bowing himself low to serve these visitors. And I see two things in Abraham's encounter. There's both an immediacy and action, and there's a posture of radical welcome. The passage says that he goes on to wash their dirty, travel-worn feet with water, and he gives them bread for much-needed nourishment. And the bread and the foot washing were offered up front by the host, but Abraham follows through. But what he doesn't tell them is he's going to go out and pick the finest, the choice calf, and have his servant kill it so that they could have a feast together under the shade of the tree. He was not just hosting these strangers, but he was spoiling them with an abundance. This is a display of human kindness, no doubt, but Abraham was also following a very clear mandate from God. In Leviticus, the book on legal and moral practices, it says in chapter 19, 
when you harvest your crops of the harvest when you harvest the crops of your land do not gather the grain all the way to the edges of your fields or pick up what was overlooked during the first round of harvesting likewise do not strip the vines bare in your vineyard or gather the falling grapes leave the fallen fruit and some grapes on the vine for the poor and strangers living among you for i am the lord your god i would say that thinking about this verse that our society is more of a take all the fallen fruit and leave no grapes on the vine sort of motto of relating to others wouldn't you but this mandate from God for the sacrificial care of the stranger, you can tell, is an expectation. It's inscribed in the very covenant between God and God's people. So it doesn't surprise us, then, that stories of hospitality are all over the Bible. Beginning with the Old Testament, how God welcomes and provides a place for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We think about how Boaz welcomed Ruth and would eventually pledge his care for her. There's a story of Rahab who welcomed the Hebrew spies and of Elijah who received the hospitality of the widow Zarephath in 1 Kings and how Elisha was hosted by the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, You shall love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And these words would remind God's people that they were to show hospitality and because of the hospitality that they themselves had once received. This was an imperative to care for others, not merely as a moral act, but as a godly response in light of their shared human experience. As you have been loved and accepted as a stranger, so welcome and love the stranger in return. Stories of hospitality aren't just in the Old Testament. We think about all the ones that are in the New Testament as well. Maybe some are on your mind as well. There's a story of the selfless care of the Good Samaritan. When we remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who invited Jesus into his house to share a meal. And Jesus entering the home of Mary and Martha and Lydia who provided room and board to Paul and Silas on their mission. And how Jesus sent out the 12 with the expectation that they would be welcomed and cared for in the homes of strangers as they went about their journeys. Then there's the entirety of Jesus' ministry, providing meals for the multitudes on the hillsides and creating safe spaces for risky conversations with the outcasts and the marginalized of society. He shared meals in the homes of those unwelcomed by most everyone else in that society. So we could say that welcoming and caring for the stranger is at the heart of what it means to be in God's kingdom. It is central to the idea of community itself. It's interesting, I was thinking this week about the word xenophobia. You may know this word. It's actually an English word made up of two Greek words. Xenos, meaning stranger, and phobia, of course, meaning fear, which then xenophobia would be the fear of strangers. In the Greek text of the New Testament, the word used for hospitality is philoxenia. And we recognize that root word, xenos, 
But here it's paired with the Greek word philo, which means love, the love of strangers. Kind of like Philadelphia, as you know, the city of brotherly love, with Adelphia meaning brother. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if the Quaker William Penn, who founded the colony of immigrants in Pennsylvania, called the city Philozenia instead, the city where strangers were loved. And I actually think that's a perfect name for a church, the Church of Philozenia, the church where strangers are loved. And to me, that sounds about right. So what does all this wordplay have to do with hospitality? Well, sadly, there is a need in our time to use distinguishing terms to separate out those churches that truly welcome and show hospitality from those that merely give lip service. And granted, most churches still hang their banners. All are welcome. Come as you are. No perfect people allowed. Most use these slogans, but countless stories from church members testify that this many times is anything but true. And that's why there are websites such as churchclarity.org that exist. That's uh, actually the resource that led me and my family to find the River Church. And maybe some of you as well, as I've heard from your testimony. This website seeks to give an accurate score of how the language of what we say we believe as a church lines up with reality and is actually preached in the pulpit. It is backed up. And churches like ours have had to use more distinguishing words like open and affirming to separate ourselves from churches that build in conditions for acceptance. A few weeks ago, we had our first LGBTQ and Friends Fellowship, and I want to add just a very quick commercial here. Uh, it was our first one, but already I can tell that this is going to be a very meaningful event moving forward. Uh, this happens on a Tuesday night. It's focused on sharing with one another around the table and also in small group, and we make space to share our stories with one another. And then we turn to each other, and we just have fun playing games. And that's how we end the night. And I got to say, I'm very hard to beat at Uno. So <laughs> many, many that were there can testify. So I do want to ask that you make plans to join us. This is for everyone. Uh, our next meeting will be on Tuesday night, November 29th. So please join us. But in a time of sharing at our last meeting, many have voiced their experiences of going to churches that claimed welcome and hospitality, but still had to keep their real identity, who they truly were, bottled up and hidden. And they knew that if that was to get out, if who they were was to be made known to the wider community, that many, in many places they would be rejected and cast aside. And many have to live with that deep angst of having to keep their true self bottled up. So can you imagine the immense freedom that comes in encounters with others when they don't have to explain themselves or defend themselves or wonder if they will be seen and heard just as they are? We all long for this. To be clear, the call of hospitality is a call to make space. It is as if you are telling this other, stranger or not, there is a safe space where you can be just as you are, exactly as you are. 
And this can be a liberating exchange. This mandate to make space for others doesn't just apply to strangers. So I'm, I hope you hear me this morning. That's an important encounter. But it also applies to your friends. It applies to your family and your spouse or partner. So how intentional have you been lately in creating safe space for those in your closest circles to be who they need to be exactly as they are? Have you noticed what your posture has been lately to others on the outside? Is it one that communicates, better try elsewhere, out of service today? Or one of welcome, vulnerability, and even service? I have to admit, I asked myself these questions this week as well. These are hard questions to ask. And it comes from this, make no mistake, when we encounter the other, whether stranger or family or friend, we are encountering God, not someone who carries the potential to be the image of God, but the very presence of God. My sister-in-law, Emily, has worked for Marriott for many years, so she is in the hospitality industry. This industry is comprised, as you know, of all of our service industries, food and beverage, lodging, recreation, travel and tourism, and meeting and events. And I love what she does, don't get me wrong, because we benefit. We get uh, cheap hotels anytime we travel. So it's quite a nice perk. But this is truly how we've come to understand hospitality in our society as an industry. It has been monetized. It's something that people benefit from in a transactional kind of way. And around here, we would say that that makes it conditional. Yeah, every single one of the examples we find in Scripture show us that hospitality is condition-free. It is unconditional in the same way that we speak here of the agape brand of love. It is that we, is it that we, as Christ's church on earth and as individuals, we have relegated the work of hospitality to an industry that is positioned to profit from consumers. And that is tra transactional and it is conditional. It is not sacrificial. As we look to finish this year, 2022, we are in a season rich with opportunities to encounter strangers. After all, this is the season of charity and goodwill. But where there is opportunity, there's also the great risk to remain inward and self-focused. Even in a month of Thanksgiving, our default might, might be just to have tunnel vision regarding all that we've accomplished, what we have been given, what we have overcome, what we have been awarded in life. And surely, self-reflection and, and gratitude are very important values. But this inwardness can sometimes come at the expense of being available and open to those around us. This time of year, I'm also reminded of how so many open their homes to students and other neighbors and friends who cannot get home to be with family during Thanksgiving either because their family is just too far geographically or maybe too far in the relationship. And what a beautiful picture of hospitality to provide space for the other, to invite them into your home that might be on the outskirts of your circles, 
to share the intimacy of a meal. Christmas is no easier. There's an even greater risk, I think, of self-centeredness. Usually by that time in the year, we feel like we have earned the right to focus inward, to retreat into our gifts, to tune out the rest of the world. But God, embodied in the form of human flesh in Jesus, modeled for us to do otherwise. We are challenged by the message of Christmas to show up and enter into the stories of others, into their messiness and their imperfections and their scars and all. And in this way, we become little incarnations, literally God in the flesh each and every day as we live that out. In closing, I do want to offer some considerations. And these might be for uh, encounters that you might have with the other, particularly those that you may not know, so first encounters. And I want to offer them as value statements this morning. These are countercultural, to be sure, because true hospitality is countercultural. So when you encounter the other, number one, value difference over commonality. We've often said that opposites attract in our romantic relationships, but this could be said also of our daily encounters. Haven't you always been taught to find commonalities whenever you meet someone for the first time? I feel like this is the problem of the swipe right generation. This approach stems from a tribalistic mentality. Commonality can be great, but if it is the goal in our interactions, then it also is the way out of them. It becomes our grounds for judgment, for othering that person, seeing them not as part of your group because they're just different people. Our approach, I see, should be instead to find fascination with particularity and with difference. Be intrigued with all of the ways that you are not only alike, but all of the ways that you are different. Number two, value story over facts. And when you engage the stranger, listen to their story. We live in a soundbite society. This is why TikTok is so successful. Our society wants to capture everyone in 15-second sound clips or short social media bios, but it has very little value for story. The danger is that leaning on facts can lead to labeling. Oh, she's just a Knicks fan. He's just another right-wing conservative. They belong to that group or they're of that generation. People can be easily reduced to facts about their life and we mistake in it for who they really are and it leaves no room for actually what they might become. So center a person's story. And I think that if we do that, it acknowledges this complexity that makes all of us up as an individual. Number three, value space for authenticity and make room for growth. I think people can be said to be like airports. Everyone has some place from which they're coming and a place to which they're going. People aren't static figures in history, but individuals that are in transition and in process. And I think if we get this right, if we have this mentality, we can be led into more grace-filled interactions with the other. 
I also want to say that liberating encounters like this are reciprocal. You will find that when you make space for others to be themselves, that that gift might be returned to you. And hospitality is space-making. When we practice this, it can be healing. It can be freeing, not just for the stranger, and not just for your friends and for your family, but even for yourself. So value difference over commonality. Value story over facts. And value space for authenticity and make room for growth. As I close, I want to offer this parting challenge from 1 Peter 4, 8 through 9. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. I think that's good advice for us this morning. May it be so.